Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. Global carbon dioxide emissions are accelerating at their fastest pace in seven years, despite pledges by nearly 200 countries to limit global warming. So what can be done? Can science provide the answers where politicians have failed? Professor Neelay Shah of London's Imperial College was one of the lead researchers in a study that looked into this question. He spoke to Clive Cookson about its findings. Neelay, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us first about the study you've carried out for the government? Who took part and what you were asked to find out and recommend? Yes, the study that we were asked to look at was undertaken by the Royal Society, which is the leading institution for science, and the Royal Academy of Engineering, which brings together the engineers in the UK. And at the top level, the question was quite simple, which is that at some point in the future, to stabilise the climate around the world, we're going to have no net emissions of greenhouse gases. We'll probably at some point need a net reduction, but we need at least to get to net zero emissions so that we keep the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere constant. And then there may even be a time when we want to bring it down. But even to keep it constant, so you have net zero emissions, requires you to do two key things. One is to minimize the amount of positive emissions you make into the atmosphere. And the UK government has looked at various scenarios for reducing emissions by changing the nature of the energy system, by changing the way houses are heated, by changing the way vehicles work and changing the way industry uses energy. And those changes can make a big difference. They can get us from about 500 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent today to about 130 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent by, let's say, 2050. And the problem with the 130 that remain is they're very difficult to get rid of. So with a lot of effort over the coming decades, we could reduce our emissions from 500 million tonnes to 130 million tonnes. So then the question is, how do we go from 130 million to zero? And that's where this report comes in. So what this report looks at is what are called greenhouse gas removal technologies. So they're technologies that will acknowledge the fact that we'll continue to keep emitting of the order of 130 million tonnes, but then we have strategies to pull that back out of the atmosphere and get us to net zero. And that's what we were asked to find out, is what do those options look like how quickly can we get there and what are some of the details of them? Okay, well, we can go into some of the options and look at the more promising ones in a moment. But first of all, the big question is, is it achievable at all? From your work, do you think we can get 130 megatons of CO2 out of the air every year by 2050? It's technically achievable. It's a stretch figure and it would need us to start some of the recommended actions fairly quickly because otherwise we'll just leave ourselves too much work to do. And it comes down to two things, political will and establishing effective business and financing models so that people can actually get on and do it with confidence. So it's certainly technically possible, but it will bring with it some costs. I think the benefits outweigh the costs, but we as a society will see the costs up front And the benefits are against a counterfactual case where we will see the environmental damages in the future. So that is a difficult calculation to explain and sell, but certainly it's technically feasible. 
which techniques are you thinking might be the most effective? There are environmental and ecological options which relate to our management of land in the UK. And those are particularly effective in the near term because they're things that we can start doing very quickly. So those include examples such as ramping up of forestation, growing a large number of forests in appropriate places in the UK, restoring various habitats such as wetlands and peatlands, and increasing the amount of soil carbon by changing some land management practices. So those are things that can be started very quickly. Then there are things that will take a little bit longer, but which have a capacity to do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of greenhouse gas removal or greenhouse gas reduction, which are, first of all, using what's called BECS, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So you use biomass that has absorbed carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in power plants, and then you capture the carbon dioxide emissions and you sequester them underground. So you overall end up with a system that produces an energy output, which could be electricity, but it could also be hydrogen, for example. And it also removes carbon dioxide for the atmosphere. And another technology that can operate at scale is called direct air capture, which is essentially large or medium-sized process plants which separate out the carbon dioxide from the other constituents of the air, concentrate it, and then sequester it in some form, which means lock it away away from the atmosphere, either in a solid mineral form, for example, or again in geological formations underground. So in the near term, it's about some agricultural and forestry and land practices, which can get us going in quite a big way. And in the longer term, it's going to be engineered solutions. Have those engineered solutions been tested and developed successfully anywhere in the world yet? Yes. So there are some pilot examples of the direct air capture process. So there are some that work with high temperature processes and some that work with low temperature processes. And they have been demonstrated, for example, in Canada and Switzerland. And the bioenergy with carbon capture and storage has been demonstrated in two ways. So there are plenty of bioenergy plants and there are plenty of carbon capture and storage plants. So the two distinct technologies have been proven and there isn't really any major difficulty in combining them. There is also one example of a plant that uses biological feedstock and captures the carbon dioxide, which is in Illinois. So that is a practical example of a bioenergy. It actually produces a biofuel rather than electricity, but it is an example of a bioenergy with carbon capture. All the things you've mentioned are very small scale compared with what will be needed. Have you any idea how much it'll cost to ramp up these technologies and use them on the scale that the report talks about? It certainly will cost figures of order 30 to $40 a tonne of carbon dioxide removed. So that might be for the less complex and less engineered solutions, so things to do with how we manage land and forestry. That, on the basis of the cost to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, can be done quite cheaply, of the order of tens of dollars per tonne of CO2 removed from the atmosphere. When we start to get into the bioenergy carbon capture and storage, that could be of the order of 100 to 200 dollars. And the direct air capture, at the moment, 
the figures that we have have a very broad range because they're very dependent on assumptions of how the technology will work because there are things that are operating at pilot scale. So the sort of order of magnitude might be in the high tens of dollars to $300, $400 per tonne of CO2 removed. If we multiply that with the number of tonnes that will have to be removed, we're getting to staggering levels of investment, and presumably that will have to come from the government or be the result of government or public sector incentives. Yes. So I think that the important point to make is, at the moment, we don't really have a mechanism to charge people for the externalities of climate change, and they're just going to be felt by future generations. So in a sense, what we're doing at the moment is we're not really paying the true cost of our energy industrial system. And if the lowest carbon system were the cheapest, then of course that's what we would be doing today. So there is a cost differential, and most of the calculations will show that we need to spend between 1% and 2% of GDP to deal with the climate change challenge. But that if we don't, damages might be of the order 3 to 6% of GDP. So there's no question that there's a cost, but that cost is partly because we are not, as a generation, paying the true cost of our current system. We're passing on some of that cost to successive generations. And really, in a sense, what we're arguing for in this report is we need to bring forward that cost. And we, as a current generation, need to pay for that cost rather than just pass it on. So there's no question that there's a cost. And what we need to find is a system that properly acknowledges that we're not paying the true cost and then building that into the way we run our society. But as I say, of order of magnitude is actually not an insurmountable figure when you look at GDP. I think the other important point to make, which is often missed, is that when you look at a society in 2050, and if they are running with a system that looks like this, the proportion of household income that will be spent on the energy bill will still be lower than it is today because the growth of household income will grow faster than the increased cost of a low-carbon energy system. So although in absolute terms, a low-carbon energy system, if you pay the true cost, will be more expensive, as a proportion of household income, it will actually go down. Although you're an engineer rather than a politician or a political scientist, can I ask you lastly how likely you think it is, given the difficulties of the climate talks taking place this month in Poland, for example, and the climate scepticism of people like President Trump. How likely is it that this is going to happen on the scale we're talking about? As a personal perspective, I would say that we will eventually deploy these technologies, but at a later time scale, because I think as a human society, we can't deal with transformational change based on a long-term projection so our culture is always to make incremental changes based on what we see. And so I think what will happen is we will see a world which will have a global temperature rise higher than the targeted 1.5 or 2, and more like in the 3 to 4 range would be my personal guess. But as we start to become familiar with the consequences of that, we will start deploying these technologies because these technologies that we've described, they do have one positive feature in the sense that they allow you to reverse some of the damage if you start to deploy them at scale and you avoid the point at which there may be other positive feedbacks in the system. So I suspect we will see these technologies deployed, but we won't be proactive enough in bringing them to scale when we really should 
will be somewhat more reactive and therefore we'll be deploying them a bit later than we should have done. That's a depressing but not utterly gloomy forecast. Thanks, Nile. Thank you. That was Nile Shah talking to Clive Cookson. We'll be back with another news feature tomorrow. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.